Hey, everybody. Who's ready to go back to the future with today's guest? Huey Lewis, lead vocalist for Bay Area, California rock and rollers, Huey Lewis in the News. We're going to take you back in time to break down the writing, recording, and release of the band's first number one hit, The Power of Love, taken from the 1985 soundtrack for the movie, Back to the Future. Some of the greatest songs are written super quickly, and this one is no exception. The music was presented to Huey by guitarist Chris Hayes, and Huey fills us in how he wrote the lyrics and melody in one fell swoop, listening on headphones to an instrumental version of the song through a Walkman cassette player while he was jogging. Submitting a song for a movie was uncharted territory for the band, and they were unsure at first if the power of love would even work for the film. Well, let's just say it worked so well, and climbed up the top 40 radio charts so quickly that production of the movie was rushed to release the film sooner than planned. That is something I can't recall ever happening with another movie. This song was massive and opened up an already huge band to an even bigger audience. And Huey made his acting debut in the film, something he thought he'd never have the opportunity to do. Super cool. For all this and a whole lot more, stay right here in the present with us. This is a good one. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? So Huey, how's it going? Good, we're good. I want to give the listeners a little a little background here on uh, on you and the band. Uh, you started uh, with a Bay Area band called Clover throughout the '70s with keyboardist Sean Hopper, uh, and after Clover disbanded, uh, you put together a band called Huey Lewis and the American Express. Later, changing the name to Huey Lewis and the News, and releasing the first self titled album in 1980. Uh, Sean was the only member besides yourself of Clover uh, to join this band, uh, where you guys secured a deal with Chrysalis Records. And the follow-up album, 1982's Picture This, is where I was introduced to the band. Both 95YNF out of Tampa and Wink FM 97 out of Fort Myers, Florida, were both spinning the heck out of this killer track called Do You Believe in Love? Love that song. Uh, in 1983, saw the release of Sports, the album that shot the band into superstardom, bolstered by radio and MTV staples, The Heart of Rock and Roll, Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, and If This Is It. In between Sports and its follow-up album from 1986 called Four, there was a little movie uh, you may have heard of that came out in 1985 called Back to the Future, and the band provided two songs of the film, Back in Time and the band's first number one hit, The Power of Love, which are going to break down today. In all, the band has released 10 albums, the most recent being Weather from 2020. And I just got to say, uh, not a Fairweather fan here. I loved I loved all your stuff over the years. Some of my favorite, uh, favorite tracks ever. Were, were the record you did 91 uh, hard at play there was a uh, couple days off and a few of those songs were just just killer cool i like it so yeah i just uh it, it was really hard to narrow down a song from your catalog you have so many iconic hits so many that i love i love the album the deep cuts uh finally found a home it might be my favorite song you ever did but i feel like we had to go with power of love and I saw the documentary where you talked about this, and um, even though the story's kind of out there, I- I'm going to dig a little deeper here, and I, I just, I have so many questions. I- how did this start? You're in between sports and four. Was this song laying around from sports that you had, or was it written specific for the film? It was begun before the film. Bob Zemeckis, who directed Back to the Future, Steven Spielberg, who produced it, and Bob Gale, who wrote it, whose story it was, although Zemeckis is co-writer also, and Neil Kent as well. They they asked to take a meeting with us at Amblin Entertainment when it was Amblin had just started, and they said, "Listen, we've written this movie, uh, and the lead character is a guy called Marty McFly, and in real life, his favorite band would be Huey Lewis and the News. So we thought, <laughs> how would you like to write a song for the film? I said, Wow, I'm flattered, you know, but I don't know how to write for film necessarily. I said. And frankly, I don't, I don't fancy writing a song called Back to the Future. I, you know, they said, oh, no, we don't care. It can be called anything. We just want one of your songs. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll just go give it a think and send you the next thing we're working on. And they go, great, great, great to meet you. So then, boom. So I went 
back and Chris had had already written uh, the chord progression for for uh, Power Love, although it just started with the verse, the minor part. I liked it a lot, and I boom, boom, and I remember I went on a run, a little jog, and I took a Walkman. Remember Sony Walkmans? Absolutely. And I wrote the, <laughs> I wrote the words in one one run, one jog, and then I wrote it all down, and then. Chris and I got it together and we kind of demoed it up a little bit. And Johnny had some great arrangement ideas. And then we, so we made this demo and my recollection is we made this demo, sent it to Zemeckis and he loved it, but that's not Zemeckis' recollection. (laughs) (laughs) Quick, quick question for you. Was back in time written prior to power of love? We hadn't written back in time yet. We I had not even seen the movie. I had not read a script. I had nothing. They just told me, hey, this guy, we just want a song. We want one of your songs. Zemeckis' recollection is I sent the demo to him. And he said, yeah, uh, but it's it, it's good, but it's not up enough. You know, up, uh, quote unquote. And um, I, I gave that a big think. And we got together. And then Johnny came up with the the intro. The big major bam, bam, oh yeah, bam. we put that on there, and then he loved it. By then, I had seen the the script. Now, I hadn't uh-huh. seen the movie yet, but I'd seen the script. They'd sent me the script, and I didn't. I thought there's no real love object in it. I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was going to work for their movie. Yeah, and then, um, but they loved it, and 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 they obviously used it well. That's so cool. And of course, you were in the movie playing the the teacher at the uh, talent show. And I got to tell you, I was probably 12 when the movie came out. My friends are telling me, and of course, you were all over MTV. I knew what you looked like, but I'm like, he's not in the movie. I had to watch, rewind that scene, of course, on VHS, Huey, uh, <laughs> to re- rewind the scene to look at you because they had you, you know, in a wig and, and, and everything. Yeah. And, just, and that, was, that was part of the deal. What was that like? Because you said you had no background in movies. That that had to have been a trip. Oh, yeah. Well, it was, interestingly, that movie was shot mostly at night because Michael J. Fox was on Family Ties and committed to doing ah. that during the day. They started the movie Back to the Future with a different Marty McFly. Eric, um, I can't remember his name now, Stoltz or something. And they shot a whole bunch of it. And then they said, it is not working. We need uh, Michael J. Fox. So they made this deal with him and he had to do the film, you know, when he was, when he wasn't doing family ties. When did the guy sleep? And so we <laughs> shot our scene at night. It was, it was at night. And um, it was Bob Zemeckis' idea that I'd be, that we, we'd be kind of a clever little nod. And, and I thought, you know, not really. I, I, I was kind of against it, to be honest, in the very beginning. And then he said, look, and we, we agreed that we, we'd do it if it was just kind of like a, an in-joke. And uh, I was uncredited and disguised, partially disguised, and and it would be a little kind of cookie for people, you know, so. Right. Well, and, and, and of course, I mean, you guys were MTV staples all over the radio, you know, from 83 when sports was released up until 85. It was just you were one of the bands at that point, one of the most popular bands of the 80s. Did you have any idea at all? Like, uh, you know, this this could be something. This movie could be big or this could be a big thing for us. It, this made a lot of sense because sports had just come out and we would had five hits on sports. We were out touring and all this stuff, and we didn't have another record really ready, you know, yet. And so this was going to be a nice thing to kind of buy the time while we did another record. Sure. I do remember that we cut the song, and then we went on tour in Europe, and then we came back and mixed it. And I remember when I cut the vocal, and I cut it at uh, uh, the record plant in Studio D in the record plant. I I cut the lead vocal and I sang it, and then I came back around the studio to just check it and, and comp it. And we were doing it. And, and I finally got it kind of the one master vocal. And then I just played it back to listen to it. And Sean, our keyboard player, was in back of me. And he said, you know what? I said, what? 
that's the best thing we've ever did we've ever done he said <laughs> i remember thinking that's the weirdest thing i ever heard really what <laughs> I, I would never think of anything like that like what's the best thing we've ever you know because we, we were producing our record so we're just in it in the middle of it just trying to make everything sound yeah. as good as possible i have no concept of what's good or bad or what's our best or worst. but but sean said that right after that play it was pretty interesting and i thought oh wow, maybe it is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, and I guess the guy in your own band that, that you were in a previous band with, one of your best friends, he, he's, he's not going to blow smoke up uh, your backside. Yeah, so right. you, you, there was something, there seemed like there was something there, right? Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Well, you know, I, I want to say bands were more prolific back then because there was money to be made on records, especially you guys. I mean, p- picture this was was a hit. And then, of course, sports went, everything went through the roof with you guys. Um, I was surprised to, to hear you say you really didn't have anything laying around in between. Were, were you guys prolific? Did you have a lot of demos and things in the vaults? Yeah, but we'd written we'd written three records already. You know, yeah. it wasn't just sports. We'd written three records. I mean, our first record has got uh, Some of My Lives Are True is a great song that we missed. We got a bunch of great songs on there that we made. The original version of Trouble in Paradise is on the first one. That's right. Uh, Don't Ever Tell Me That You Love Me is, is kind of a nice one, too. And, and we miss that a little bit. You know, we just cut everything real fast. And uh, so after writing three records, I mean, you know, look, we wrote, we wrote a song called Heart of Rock and Roll. Well, you, you, you can't write a song called the, the Soul of Rock and Roll, can you? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many songs can you write with rock and roll in the title? Yeah. Right? So that's gone. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's tough to be as prolific, you know, late. And, and, and the other thing is when you're, you know, you're hungry and you're, and you're up and coming and you're still anonymous. Now, when you get, when you become a celebrity and stuff, your world kind of collapses a little bit and there's not as much experience. Uh, on which to draw for raps, you know? So I don't know. It just gets harder. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I'm sure you've heard this too. I loved you guys. Uh, and I, I can't think of anybody growing up. There was always haters when you're kids. I don't like this band. I like that band. I can't recall anybody ever bagging on Huey Lewis in the news. You just, you were kind of like the, the, that all American guy. You look like the bar band down the street. You, di- you didn't have the long hair and the makeup. You were just real. You know, it was cool. <laughs> was there ever any pressure? Was there pressure from the record labels to, to dress you up and be that thing? Well, see, the thing is, we started actually just before music television. We actually formed in 78, you know, 77, Mm -hmm. 78, 79. Our first record came out in 80, January of 80. But but we, you know, we formed before music television. So, you know, I don't have any tattoos. If (laughs) if this had been five years later, I'd be tattooed head to foot if I thought it was going to help. You know, I mean, would would I have pierced my earrings or my nose or of course of course in a heartbeat but in my day it was an audio thing it hadn't it really wasn't much of a visual not near as much of a of a visual thing as is i mean think let's go way back music used to be the blind the the domain of blind artists Uh uh-huh and now i mean lots of them you know what i mean and now it's much harder to be to make the video and so you know so i mean things change sure sure and and one other thing i want to touch on before we, we we jump into the song and start breaking it down was there ever any pressure i mean again the, the first record i know there was a producer but ever since then you were self-producing these records you know was, was chrysalis ever in there barking at you guys chrysalis records to you know your a and r person or anybody hey we need a producer because of course you know you had a, a i want to say minor hit you know picture this was was a hit but it was nothing like sports like I, I i guess they entrusted in you you guys were getting good sounds and heck you had played forever together you you were tight as hell yeah you know, our first record was produced by bill schnee mm-hmm. and 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 didn't do anything and so our second record uh, you know, fortunately, we, we you get two records. You wouldn't get two records today. No way. And then our second record needed to be a hit. If you think back, there was no, it's, this is 1981 now. There's no internet. There's no jam band. And even FM radio, FM radio, which started in the 60s as a play anything you want, disc jockey from Big Daddy Top Donahue and KMPX and all that. By the, by the mid-70s, FM radio was completely programmed and was the format. Mm-hmm. You know 
interestingly, top 40, the term top 40 comes from a programmer, I think in Fresno, California, who, who opined that we, with the advent of push button radio, now somebody, as long as you didn't play anything that they didn't like, they wouldn't switch the channel. But now they had the, they had the, they had the capability of switching the channel when they heard something they didn't like. So the idea was narrow your playlist, just top 40, mm -hmm. play the top 40 songs all the time. Well, by 1981, CHR, which was the FM version of top 40 called contemporary hit radio was what that was. And there were really only 28 songs, maybe 29 songs that they played. And, and the, and the top five got eight or nine plays a day. And number 29 only got one a day. So it, so the playlists were even more narrow. They were so narrow, it was unbelievable. And that was that was our job. You needed to have a hit single on, on one of those 28 records, uh, or you weren't going to be able to make records again. So that was our job. Wow. And so we, we wanted to produce ourselves because we knew we'd have to make commercial decisions, and we wanted to live with those commercial decisions. And we wanted to do them do that ourselves. And our manager believed in us, and he convinced the record company. Fortunately, they were six thousand miles away in London, and they were small, <laughs> had a small label. And so we produced it. We we produced picture this ourselves, and had a kind of a tickle with "Do You Believe in Love." Then we were off on our own. But we really we yeah, really yeah. came into our own own sports, you know. Although picture this could have been a bigger record if they had, you know, the first single was "Do You Believe in Love." And they were so enamored of us as a band because we were a good band. We had a depth to us that was, because you know, we had R&B side to us. So, rhythm, yeah. and so they oh, yeah. thought, okay, we got the hit now with these guys. Let's go right to the heavy stuff. And our second single was Hope You Love Me Like You Say I Do, which is a slow R&B ballad. Oh, yes, I'm strong. But I'm weak when it comes to And it, it did not crack the top 20. And and so Working for a Living was our third single from that record. Yeah. And it was too late. We lost our momentum. And it, it was not really a hit either. But it's gone to be it's gone on to become a really big song and covered by a lot of people. And probably would have been a hit had it been released second. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of the strategy. And so, but from then on, they were gonna let us produce our records because we were successful. There wasn't a lot of bands back then, especially in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s that were producing their own stuff. You had you guys, uh, uh, Prince, maybe the Eagles, but you know they, they wanted to bring bona fide hit-making producers in. And the fact, and I look back and I look at artists after mentioned Prince and, and you guys, you knew they were just stellar killer musicians that knew what they were doing because the labels wanted to meddle in everything back then, as you yeah, know. So yeah, the fact yeah. that they let you, they left you alone is uh, just goes to show how great you guys were. Yeah, and they were Chrysalis Records. It wasn't CBS, uh, you know, and, and so we were able to manhandle them a little bit. Uh, and we're six thousand. We were literally six thousand miles away. And my manager went to bat for us. And and we were we weren't spring chickens, you know. We'd made uh, I, we'd made a record with Schnee. We worked with Schnee. I'd worked with Mutt Langer in Britain and done all kinds of sessions and stuff. So yeah, you know, we we'd made records. So you know. Yeah, you, you you had been around. Well, we're going to jump into the track now. It's three minutes and 53 seconds. I know there was some remixes. There was like a, a seven-minute dance remix at some point of this and different versions for radio. But uh, we're talking about the, the one that was uh, on the soundtrack here. Three minutes, 53 seconds. Uh, starts with a, a cymbal hit, and the whole band is in for a 13-second intro with the chorus progression with that keyboard riff you were talking about a moment ago. <laughs> It's just, I mean, how much more catchy can you get than that? It's just uplifting. And and when the producers came back to you and said, we need something a little up, uh, you, you delivered with this one. Uh, the keyboard hook over the band is killer. The guitar sound is, is overdriven with maybe like a phaser on it. Uh, it's such a killer tone. The bass is super funky. And right at the 13th second mark, there's this ah that you let out. It's almost like a whisper.
And then the whole feel here changes. The horn stabs come in, which I want to talk about the horns briefly. Was that the Tower of Power section on this track? No, that's that's synth horns, fake horns. That's a CS80 with a, believe it or not, that's how old that is, with a uh, horn patch. Okay. I thought there was horns with the keyboards there. From then on, you know, we have a horn section. Live, there's horns there. Live, there's always been horns. And, and there's live versions with horns there. But on the original record, there's no horns. I was fooled. I thought that was a horns mixed in with keyboards there. Uh, I love what the guitar and bass are doing here, playing off one another. Uh, and the guitar is super clean, almost with, with a chorusy effect on it. And it's a very counterpointy part. It's not an easy part to play. Chris is, you know, a fantastic guitar player. And he and he's a jazzer and everything. I mean, he's he's a, just a, and that, that's typical Chris. It's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous little uh, counterpoint thing, yeah. It, it is awesome, I'm, and I'm going to talk about that counter riff you're talking about in a second. I'm going to get into that because there's something I want to I touch on. But uh, at 21 seconds, uh, we're in verse 1. of love is a curious thing make one man weep make another man sing change a hawk to a little white dove more than a feeling that's the power of love and we get a little soft mmm from you there Huey at the end of that and uh, there's a half measure turnaround and the second part of uh, verse one is tougher than diamonds rich like cream stronger and harder than a bad girl's dream make a bad one good make a wrong one right power of love will keep you home at night What's going on here? Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, it's just like the song said. It's funny, you know, the little mm you said in there. Yeah. And and all, and the ah is yeah. uh, the ah I did because it was cool. I do that a, a number of songs actually. It's kind of a little. I can't help. I like I like it a lot. It's awesome. I like it a lot. <laughs> Hey everybody, don't go anywhere. Our journey back in time with Huey Lewis will continue after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. If you like Chris to Makes a Podcast, I'm going to assume that you like music podcasts. And if you like music podcasts, check out One Hit Thunder. Each week, we dive into a one-hit wonder, and along the way, we gain some knowledge and have some laughs. Lou Bega, Crazy Town, Harvey Danger, The New Radicals, AHA... We're over 100 episodes in now, and to paraphrase the great Matthew Wilder, nothing's going to break our stride. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. And now, back to the future. Or, I mean, podcast. But, but the mm is from just getting pitch in between getting ready Boom, and they just and Claremont left it in. You know, uh, uh, you know Bob Claremont mixes most of our records, and he's a genius. I mean, he's Bob's a monster. He's just really, really good. Yeah. And and um, another advantage of having an outside mixer is a guy who's who, a guy who's wasn't there when you recorded this. He is it's a new objective look on everything. You know, he wasn't there when the when the music was cut. And he doesn't see the stitches, if you know what I mean. The, oh, yeah. The, the sutures. And yeah. sometimes, you you know, a part which was really difficult to cut, you'll tend to underbalance because you remember how what a pain it was to cut it. And then, But he'll go, wow, that's great, and put it up real loud, you know? And so his his perspective is is invaluable on that stuff. And, um, and that, that's, that's an example of that. 
Well, no, and I was going to ask, was that at some time what I refer to as vocal scatting, where you're just trying to, you're kind of warming up a little bit, as you said, or, or trying to find right. a pitch, and it was left in there. And, and that adds to that realness that I feel is missing so much today when you're copying, pasting in Pro Tools, <laughs> those little things. You have to capture performances. And when you do it, when you do comps and all that stuff, you know, you, there's a breath that happens. People, when they sing, they go, <clears throat> and there's a little breath noise in there that's important. Yeah. And if you don't get that breath noise, if you're just cutting in the lyrics, it, it ends up antiseptic. For sure. And a lot of that uh, I feel is missing today, too. Yeah. A lot of times you get that breathiness on the on the slower ballads and you would really want you almost feel like you're there in the, in the sure. room with the person as they're singing. It adds such a such a personal note to it. Power level wasn't cut with Pro Tools. So <laughs> no, no, not not at all. Which it's pure analog right there. Baby. <laughs> which, again, you know, when when Chris when Chris brought this riff to the band, was this a first take at the lyrics that came out of you or what was the inspiration behind, behind these lyrics? He gave me a tape with a progression. I listened to it on a Walkman and immediately had this idea. And I went on a little run, you know, a little jog with my Walkman. And I wrote the lyric in one jog. I had it completely <laughs> done in one three mile run. <laughs> like the biggest hit of your career. It's like, that's like your, your I've always said as a musician, sometimes you channel stuff that you don't know where it comes from. Right. And, and, and I wrote, you know, the muse comes of, and we were quite prolific in those days. And, and the, what's interesting is, because I would write them and we'd write them and then record them and so on. And I, I wouldn't pour over them much. I would just keep going, you know, and just keep new ones. So I didn't really rewrite enough. And I, this happens to me very long when I get along, I, I get down the line, I think years later, I think, man, I should have spent a little more time on that song. You know, <laughs> it, could, it could have been better. And I, and I, I just kind of dashed off a lot of them. But I mean, like working for a living is an example. You know, I mean, there's that was my first take on that lyric. I could have re redone that a little better, maybe. I don't know. Isn't that amazing how artists, they, uh, you know, the great ones at least, always want to keep pushing it. And you'll hear a song on the radio or you hear a song that you did and you're like, I could have done that better. But to, to the audience, to the fans, that that's the song. It can't be better. Yeah, no, I, and I never, <laughs> and you're dead right. Every time I hear a song, it's always something. It's like, it's either the mix or the arrangement or the uh, lyric or something could be better. No question. I, I, that harmony, I should have had the harmony come in there. I should, it could have been better. I know, I, I, I feel you. Well, something else I wrote here I wanted to touch on, and we're, and we're talking about that counter uh, guitar p uh, part uh, that, that, that Chris had come up with in, in these uh, verses. Right. I, I love that the band is in a groove all its own with that, but your vocal melody is floating with its own thing. It's almost like two different songs at once are happening with, with the verse here, if that makes sense. It's almost like they shouldn't work. I mean, you know, dint, 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 you know, what the guitar's doing there. Yeah, well, that, that counterpoint move he's got is really interesting. So the, they move at different times. And that, yes. kind of a, it's kind of a polyrhythmic figure there that, that he plays. And it's, it, it's neat. A lot of times when you hear a great riff, let's look at Iron Man by Sabbath. Ozzy's melody line is copying that. You know, you could have went in here and done a derivative of, of that right. uh, uh, counterpoint guitar, but your melody line is just sits on top of this. It's in, it's incredible. Was that a was that a first stab on that jog? Was that what, what what you heard? Yeah, it was almost like for me, it was almost like an Al Green thing. I heard it like an Al Green thing. You know? Yeah. You know, like like take me to the river or something. Kind of an Al Green thing. I don't know why she treated me so bad. And that's kind of how I wrote it. Interesting. I met that with the utmost respect. It's like two different songs. If you were to solo them, you're like, oh, you know, because yeah. there's so many melodies that could go over that. But what works with it? I don't think you could have picked a better one. I like that there's no pre-chorus here. You're just right into chorus one. It's just shy of the minute mark, 58 seconds. Uh, you're back to the intro chord progression with the keyboard hook here. Don't need money. Don't take fame. Don't need no credit card. 
Interestingly enough, there's still no harmonies in this song, and we'll right. touch on that later when they come in, which I can't believe a song this big, you guys could sing a telephone book and make it sound good. Your harmonies were fantastic. This song's massive. There's no harmonies at all. The, the lyric here is, don't need money, which is the only time it says don't need money right. in this song, too, which is, which is cool. Don't take fame. Don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden, and it's cruel sometimes but it might just save your life. The band stops, and you say, that's the power of love. And now we're back into the verse groove, and you get the hook again. That's the power of love. It's awesome. Was there any talk uh, amongst the band members? You're in cutting the track of, there should be some harmonies here. Or was it just, you always heard it as a single vocal? There might be some two-part. Is there? I think there's some doubles going on here, but I'm I'm speaking of actual harmonies, you know, like thirds and stuff. There isn't. There's not even any two-part. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think there's any. I don't know. I don't know why. That's interesting, right? <laughs> it's it's very interesting. I, I actually, never really until the feel the power of love. There, there, there's yeah. You know, I, I hadn't even really thought about that, but you're right. I mean, you look at your look at all the hits you guys had. They all have harmonies. You guys were just sang so great. Your rhythm and blues band. You, right. uh, you, you could you could cut it live. Of course, there's going to be harmonies. And I never realized it much like you until the last two days. I'm dissecting. I'm going line by line of this thing. I'm in headphones. Finally, it dawned on me. There's no damn harmony of this song. Right. You know, until until way later, which is just so interesting. And again, it doesn't need it, obviously, but it, I just found that to be very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I got to admit, I hadn't really thought of that myself. <laughs> I, I, it just doesn't call for it. I mean, now that I think about it, I don't know what, what we would do. And you don't want it. Uh, call and response thing. And then it's too, too right. you know, too doo-woppy. And it's not it's contemporary. So the other thing that's so interesting with this is that it's no, none of the choruses are ever the same. And lyrically, they change. A lot of times you want the chorus to keep hitting you over the head. And I found that to be to be really cool with this is that the chorus uh, is never the same, but it keeps you hooked in. Verse two comes right off the heels of chorus one. You're just right back into it. First time you feel it, it might make you sad. Next time you feel it, it might make you mad. But you'll be glad, baby, when you found that the power makes the world go round. Amen. <laughs> Do you recall that maybe this verse here was going to be up at the top and they were switched around? Or was it written kind of just like this from, from when you wrote it? I, I don't recall because I got a crappy memory anyway. But, but I, I'm sure, I think Sean said I had a, a slightly different lyric, but... You know, I, I, I work on this stuff in my head and before I sing it, I have to, I have to know it like a, um, like a haiku. It, it needs to be part of me. And, and it's easier when you write them. If you just, I mean, the songs, they're not that, they're not that much lyrics in a song. You can memorize it easy. So yeah. I just work on it in my head and I think I can't find any notes or any of that stuff, but I did. I had reams of stuff somewhere well and i'll tell you it, it's amazing that the song sticks with you or sticks with me or any listener and, and like it does because again the choruses are all different the lyrics change and a lot of times you know yeah. that'll throw you off but in this instance it called for this it's perfect chorus two case in point changes here And it don't take money, don't take fame, don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden, it can be cruel sometimes, but it might just save your life. And I had written here that, you know, some words change here uh, you know, from the other chorus. And I had written that, it, I think it's a lot of this has to do with bands back then, especially your band that was rooted, as you touched on before, rooted in rhythm and blues. Right. Because 
the art of jamming is lost. I don't know many bands that, that, that could get on stage and ad-lib a 15, 20-minute jam thing. Rhythm and blues bands did that. And a lot of times when you would do that, it would you would kind of ad-lib a different lyric here or there. And that's what I feel with the song. It sounds fresh. It doesn't sound stagnant, copy and paste like it is today. I can feel that rhythm and blues band, even though this is a pop single, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I like doing that, changing it up, of course, of course. You know, the band used to always do that oddly enough they, they, they would you know there was a little little five beat measures you know we do that a lot We're, yes there aren't any in power love but or six beat six uh six beat measures yeah a measure and a half or something and harder rock and roll has that you know yes no face that i'd rather be where else can you do a half a million things all at a quarter to Uh, it's just kind of fun. It's like little things for guys to discover her work in the song club, almost. I mean, I'm kind of of two minds that way. We Sometimes it's hard to get, you know, it's hard because you want it to be just a straight four. But once you get it, it's kind of a cool little thing, you know. So, I don't know. We do that a little bit. It's I think it's to please ourselves somehow and, and leave little little cookies for other people who want to work, work up the song. Yeah, no, and it's and it's great. It it keeps it from being stagnant, and and uh, I, I like those knee jerk reactions in songs. Sometimes you're like, "Whoa, what just happened?" You know, and and, yeah, and you right. sometimes you don't even know what happened. It just it you just know that it makes you feel different. And that's why I love dissecting songs. I can go back and go, "Oh, I get it now." As, as I'm really looking at it on paper, it's because you know this this has five five sets of lyrics here versus four in the first time. That's why it makes you feel different, but you don't realize it as, as the song's passing by. The bridge in this song is killer. Uh, the first harmonies come in and vocal pads uh, of the song com, uh, come in right here. And, and what a departure this part is. It feels totally different from the rest of the song. Kind of harkens back to something like stuck on you or if this is it this bridge part it doesn't really sound like it goes with the rest of the song which is great it does go with the rest of the song but it, it's such a great departure the lyric is they say that all in love is fair and that's where those vocal pads are coming back and then you're alone on the line yeah but you don't care oh there's harmony there you yes. know what to do oh yeah behind it so there, there's there's a harmony <laughs> and by the way though that that bridge Chris, that's Chris's bridge, and the chords are gorgeous in there, I think. They're great. And he liked it so much that when he originally wrote the song, the music, that was a major part. That happened again, at least twice, maybe three times. And Johnny, Johnny, to his credit, said, you know what? That's a bridge. That's a little too this, uh, boom, boom, boom. And Johnny arranged that that way, like that, so that it's like, rock relief if you will and boom and and you hear those beautiful chords and it's uh it it works great as a bridge well yeah and you guys have always had like that 50s doo-wop thing going on with your vocals you know bad as bad comes to mind from the sports record those backing pads aren't locked with your lead vocal and it kind of pushes and pulls there. And that really adds again, that realism. And and it's so great, but you know what to do when it gets a hold of you and with a little help from above. And then it goes into the next part. It comes back to the, to the uh, uh, verse progression. And you say, you'll feel the power of love. You'll feel the power of love. Can you feel it? Mm-hmm. You feel the power of love. This part is great because you're getting the hook uh, lyric in here twice without going back for a full chorus. You're getting right. that power power eleven, which I think is great. We agonized over that, but come from the guitar solo and then just power into the chorus. What the heck? I kept thinking we were maybe needed a new verse, 
there to go to the chorus, but enough already. <laughs> well, and I, I think that you, when you were talking about the bridge being a relief part, I almost feel like the big relief part in this song is the guitar solo, because right. this part, again, it doesn't sound like it was overthought. The guitar solo is not doing this 80s guitar wankery, super fast stuff. It's a very mellow solo over the verse progression. It's like it's like eight measures. The solo is super tasteful. some really cool rhythmic drum cymbal things going on here that aren't in the regular verses, but this solo's 33 seconds long. It's one-sixth of the song length, basically, but it's just kind of moving along because you know the chorus is coming back at some point. I think this is the perfect relief part in the song. Yeah, it works good. It's just the transition from this part to the chorus is a bit abrupt. You know, you go from minor to major and it goes, bam, it, it, it's a little abrupt, but what the heck? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> couldn't figure out a short of sing writing and singing another verse you see and, and then i thought well now now that's much ado about nothing we've already made our point so that's that's why i did that just go no I, I i think you're getting the verse albeit with the guitar solo you're getting the feel of it it's enough i don't think that there uh as you just said does didn't need to be any more information or any lyrics there uh and now we're major again it gets us into chorus three again the lyrics change here you know, and I don't even want to say this is a double chorus. It's just kind of a, a big chorus here that kind of ends and, of course, fades out later. But the lyric is, don't take money and don't take fame. Don't need no credit card to ride this train. And I, I love how the melody changes on this chorus. The melodies, you, you right. go up there. And that's just, by this point in the song, um, it, it just, it, it lifts again. It's great. Uh, don't need no credit card to ride this train. Tougher than diamonds and stronger than steel. You won't feel nothing. Till you feel. I love that line. Uh, you feel the power. Just feel the power of love. That's the power. That's the power of love. Now we get these killer Huey Lewis and the News harmonies on this next line. This might be the perfect tie-up of, of, of any song ever. Feel the power of love, uh, of that little tag you do there in the harmonies. It's it it's it's so good, and the song the song fades out there. Again, thinking of this last chorus, I know it's a long time ago. Was this exactly how it was, or did it take you a minute to figure this out? Because it's kind of a strange chorus the the way that you end it. Well, I, I just improvised that at the end. I just would sing along, and I just improvised. I knew I had to have a little, I think I wrote, I wrote the diamonds part and then, then just improvised, feel the power of love, feel the power of love, feel the power of love, you know, and then when we added the harmonies is what we did. We just, I had already sung the vocal. We didn't, we didn't plan it that way. We just harmonized the lead vocal. That's so great. So pretty easy, really. So the song comes out, the movie's a smash, which, you know, a lot of times there was a lot of great songs that ended up on soundtracks to movies that flopped. And the, the song never got a chance, you know. This song was was the fastest rising when, when we released it. Uh, it went to number one in nine weeks, which is real. You know, in those days, you you, you first you release a record and you get most added. You want you want the, the, every week there are these tip sheets that would tell you where you're at. Most yeah. added, you got so it got most added. Then it got most 
biggest mover and then it got most plays and most phones and all this stuff went straight to the top power level, the biggest hit we ever had. And the movie wasn't out. The movie is not out. And, and to this day, the time between the end of principal shooting and the release of a movie is a long time sometimes. Principal, mm-hmm. they have to edit the movie, then they have to market the movie, they have to get it ready, and then they got to release it. The time between principal shooting of Back to the Future and the release of Back to the Future is the shortest time of any major picture ever. Wow. It was nine weeks. And the reason it was it was is because the song from the movie was steaming up the charts. And Universal said, We gotta get this movie out there. And they Wow, and that that's backward that's backwards. Exactly. And they rushed it up. And the day the movie came out, Power of Love was number one when the movie was released. And Bob Zemeckis will back me up on this. The song was the was the propeller for the movie in the beginning. Then of course the movie was a huge smash and 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 was wonderful for the song. Ah, oh, it's so that's so awesome. One last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up. You know, sports. You guys were on the road uh, forever. Five singles on that record, which I didn't include in the uh, in the intro. Of course, "Walking on a Thin Line" was another huge song from from that record. One of my favorites. Uh, but you're on the road. This comes up. You record "Power of Love." I mean, four came out in '86. I'm assuming you're starting to write for the four record. But did did you get any pressure from label or management? Like, listen, "Power of Love" is number one. We got to send you guys back out on tour. Did you go back out on the road? Well, they wanted another record is what they wanted. They wanted a record right away because the record label, we'd sold, you know, 8 million or something with sports. And now Power of Love was a huge smash. And Power of Love was not on a Christmas record. It was not on one of a Huey Lewis and the News record. Mm-hmm. It was it was bought by Amblin, by uh, Universal. And it was on MCA, I guess. So I can't remember. In fact, it, it only appeared on the soundtrack album of Back to the Future, which was a lousy record. It had one other tune on it, a bunch <laughs> of short music, and, and and never. It, I think it sold. I think it's gold now, but it never yeah. went platinum. Didn't go platinum. Interestingly, right? This is Back to the Future, the, the the soundtrack album, Back to the Future. It didn't even go platinum. The next soundtrack album after that was Flashdance. It uh-huh. sold. It sold thirteen million records. Then Dirty Dancing. <laughs> which did 15 million records. So notion that the Back to the Future soundtrack with Power of Love sold under a million units is outrageous. It is, but at the same time, as you know, soundtracks were notoriously horrible back then. You you might get one cut that was decent, one or two, and the rest was was filler. With this one, they had a number one single. Yeah. This was uh, MCA, and they really dropped the ball. We weren't allowed to put Power of Love on a Huey Lewis News record. So it's in America. But they said, you can do it overseas in the rest of the world. So we added Power of Love to four album in the rest of the world. In America, uh, Power of Love is only on Back to the Future soundtrack. Right. I had read that it was on the uh, Japanese release of four. On any release of four, any international release of four, Power of Love appears. That's why when we play in London or Paris or Japan or any of those places, Jacob's Ladder, Perfect World, uh, Doing All For My Baby. These are much bigger songs than One New Drug, Hard to Rock and Roll, and If This Is It. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Stuck With You is a bigger song than If This Is It because it's on four and where power love is that's incredible well, and a lot a lot of soundtracks labels would put it out whatever record company columbia records would put out the soundtrack and they didn't want your song somewhere else they wanted the soundtrack to sell and again to your point the fact that the song was number one this massive hit and it sold under a million copies the actual soundtrack to back to the future uh yeah there was there must have been some other stinkers on there as there was but uh, uh huey i just want to thank you so much and congratulate you for all of your success i've just been honored to, to speak with you about this today thank you you bet. Didn't hurt a bit. It was a real fun. Hey, everybody. This is not it for Chris to make a podcast. There's plenty more after a few words from our sponsors. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will. 
with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Do you enjoy the content and production of Krista Makes a Podcast? Do you have an idea for a podcast or an existing podcast that you'd like to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have over 25 years of combined experience in the pod field, and we're ready to help you succeed in the golden era of podcasting. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your song via MP3 only and your bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Layla Brisbois from Orlando, Florida. I was eating at the restaurant at House of Blues Orlando on the last night of our recent tour with Newfound Glory, and I heard this voice coming from the other side of the room. It was Layla's, and it was killer. Her music can be found on iTunes and Spotify, and here's a snippet of her song, Shudder. You already got my mind, you already got my time, now tell me, what's it gonna be? And Chris. So, Chris, were you a little bit starstruck by the fact that you were doing a podcast with Huey Lewis? <laughs> I think so. I, I, I not think so. I know so. I told you before we started rolling that I had a, I just had a night where I was tossing and turning. I was in my head. Uh, obviously, never met him before. Talked to him. You know, I, I've heard through the grapevine he's a super nice guy. I've heard he's hard to deal with. You never know what you're getting. Uh, yeah, I was a little starstruck today, Chris. <laughs> when we got on there, I told him, "Man, I got to tell you, the first cassette I ever got as a kid was uh, the Perfect World album. And then when you guys were recording, I realized to myself, wait a second, the song is called Perfect World. The album is called Small World. So the whole time you're recording, I'm thinking to myself, oh man, I feel so dumb. And I, <laughs> I had to tell him after you guys were done, like, yo man, I do realize the album's called Small World. He didn't even remember <laughs> what I said, but he's like, no, the song's Perfect World. I'm like, yeah, but the album's Small World. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was definitely starstruck by him. I mean, as a kid growing up, loving Huey Lewis in the news, seeing Huey Lewis being this, kind of, he was always really funny and charismatic in the music videos. He just seemed larger than life to me always. Yeah. And and he came out at a time where, I mean, you had some guys that were kind of, you know, dressed in their street clothes. Phil, Phil Collins comes to mind, but, you know, he was just kind of like the, your everyday next door neighbor, you know, Huey Lewis, just kind of like, oh, there's, you know, Mr. Lewis going to work. He's got his button down and his tie on. And he had this, you know, kind of short conservative haircut. As he said, he, he didn't do the tattoo thing, the piercing thing. And I think that that uh, is what made them stand out when it made him kind of special. Yeah, it was just kind of like the really handsome, good singing uh, guy next door <laughs> that you want to be friends with. I think that's like a really good way to put it is when I saw that guy on TV as a kid, I was kind of like, I want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I and you know, as you know, Chris, we went back and forth. Uh, I think Power of Love was the song uh, to do. Uh, but man, what a laundry list of hits yeah. this band has. I mean, uh, so many songs, so many great songs, and, and they were part of the soundtrack to my childhood. So uh, my head was spinning for a couple of days, but we, we zeroed in on Power of Love, and what a great story. 
I would love to have him come back <laughs> every five episodes and talk <laughs> about another Huey Lewis and the News hit. There's so many. I mean, our first instinct was I want a new drug, which I think that would have been amazing too. But we're like, man, we got to do the power of love. Yeah. And I was a bit apprehensive because the story's kind of out there. They did the documentary where he, mm -hmm. he talked about it. But, you know, I, I kind of thought, you know what? That probably no one went as in-depth as, as we were going to go on the show here. And uh, I think we got a lot more out of him. I thought, thought it was really cool that uh, he, he admitted that yeah i never thought that there was no harmonies in that chorus Th those kinds of things which which uh that that gets me excited that i could tell a performer of, of a song they wrote almost 40 years ago that uh you know they don't they don't know something about it yeah i thought that was great wow i i saw the movies that made us about back to the future i i knew a lot of the background on this song too maybe some people listening did too but that story about the fact that the success of the song pushed the release of one of the biggest movies of all time. That's insane. I've never heard of that before. That is crazy. It, it, you haven't heard it because it's unheard of. It, it, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, it goes to show you people, it had to be a phenomenon like Dirty Dancing or Flash Dance, as, as, he, as he had mentioned, uh, for soundtracks to sell. They, they notoriously just were bad. They were rec record company write-offs. It's like they might have one or two good hits, but it was filled with a lot of filler, bad B-sides. And, uh, you know, a lot of times bands were reluctant to give a great song to a soundtrack for fear that the movie would flop and it wouldn't do anything. This was just the opposite. This song was so big that they, they rushed the uh, the film's release. Right. It was like the song and the movie were working in conjunction with each other, which is crazy. All the crossovers. I guess I didn't realize that Huey Lewis had a cameo in the movie, too. How wild is that <laughs> to not only have this huge, I don't know, gigantic music career, but even beyond that, you are immortalized in one of the biggest most popular movies of all time i think that is just incredible yeah no and and he even mentioned it was it was his first foray in any of this so when they asked him to write a song movie he's like i've never scored a movie or written songs i don't think in those terms and and the fact that he even said there was really no central uh, I guess Michael J. Fox had a, had a love interest in the movie, which ended up at some point, I think, being his mother from <laughs> years later. But there was really yeah. no central love story to this song for the power of love. But but just the message of power of love, I think, is universal enough that, that it worked with the film. Yeah, I mean, the power of love, even in this song, even within the lyrics, it's kind of the power of love. I, I know I've seen Huey say this before, that it's like the the love of family and stuff, which that is a theme in it love isn't always just romantic sure you know it there, there's a lot of forms of love there's just a overarching love of humanity and stuff so i don't think it always has to be the romantic thing um on a nerdy level chris i love that we found out that those aren't real horns in the song those are actually as we've discussed I think in the after party we discussed this, but I feel like I've been discussing it on so many podcasts lately. That's the Yamaha CS80 yeah. that was used on so many hit songs with like a, a horns patch. It was. And, and you know, those stabs there, I thought the keyboard was still there, the main keyboard riff. That sound was still there mixed with real horns. I was fooled. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 0 for 1 on the episode. Uh, you know, I got I got defeat to makes going on here. But yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, thought, uh, I, I thought that they were... Uh, there was horns there with it so that was that was neat to know to, to find out yeah it's surprising you know because we knew that the tower of power were the horn section they toured with right which i guess happened shortly after the success of this yeah i think they they needed to up their ante uh, uh, live and just get the energy of real horns out there because this song w w was so uh just so massive but uh yeah i'm i'm still kind of just in shock that i talked to huey lewis today what a cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a cool thing man yeah man i agree i want to keep the amazing guests coming if you're listening to this right now and you enjoyed this episode plus the 80 some episodes before this you can help us out in some really easy ways you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or spotify you could text a friend or tell a friend about the show it's as easy as that did you enjoy this episode text it to a friend you can text the link right to them and they can check it out and if you really want to help out you could join our supporting cast at chrisdemakes.com for a few bucks a month you'll get a whole bunch of episodes of the after party podcast you can be a contestant on defeat to makes there's a whole lot of stuff we do 
and it helps the podcast continue. Just a few things you could do, just putting it out there. Right on. Yes, thanks to each and every one of you for all your support. If you haven't already, join the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. Lots of fun in there uh, where you can interact with like-minded listeners of the show. We have a good time over there. And if you haven't already, please give me a follow on Instagram at less than Christy. Want to thank this week's guest, Huey Lewis from Huey Lewis and the News. What a cool chat. And we'll see you next week. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.